Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School lesson for April 10th, 2022. That is Palm Sunday, also known as the Sunday of the Passion. And so for the Sunday School lesson this morning, we're looking at Matthew 27, verses 1 through 26. This is the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. So let's get right down to it. We have quite a few verses to examine, and we begin with verse 1 of Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So Jesus has already been on trial once. He's he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to the Sanhedrin, the council of the Jews, made up of the chief priests, the Pharisees, um, and the chief priests would be the Sadducees as well. And they have found Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy. And the the, uh, crime of blasphemy for them deserves the penalty of death. However, because they are ruled by the Romans who have occupied Judea, they are not allowed to put anyone to death. The Romans reserve that right for their own rulers. So, no matter how much the Pharisees and chief priests want Jesus dead, unless they want to get into great trouble themselves, they need to talk uh, Pontius Pilate into pronouncing a verdict of guilty and a death sentence too. So from here, they take uh, Jesus to Pilate for his trial. But in the meantime, in Matthew 27, we have this interlude about Judas. And we read, starting with verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Now, of course, Judas is the betrayer of Jesus, so he's kind of the arch-villain in world history because he's the one who sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But we, uh, we need to keep in mind that Judas has the same sinful flesh that we do, and he just happens to be the one who betrays Jesus. And we find out from Matthew that after Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus is condemned, The text here says that Judas changes his mind. And the word in Greek for changed his mind is actually a word that is also used for the word repent. So, after Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, it says that Judas repented. Now, we want to be careful with this word because repentance has has a couple of different meanings. Repentance can just mean, only mean, contrition or regret. You're sorry for something that you've done. Or, in a, a broader meaning, repentance can mean both regret at what you've done and trust that Christ forgives you. 
In the case of Judas, it's the first meaning, as far as we know, Judas regrets what he has done. He changes his mind and says the betrayal was the wrong thing to do. But Judas never finds forgiveness. Instead, he goes out and he hangs himself instead. And the great tragedy is not just that Judas betrays Jesus, despairs and hangs himself, but that he tries to find absolution. He tries to find forgiveness for what he has done, but he goes to the wrong people. They shouldn't be the wrong people because he goes to the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests supervise the temple worship, and the temple worship is all about sacrifices for atonement and the forgiveness of sins. So who should you go to for forgiveness, for for an announcement that you're forgiven? Well, the chief priest should be the people. Judas goes to them and he makes makes an honest confession. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's a two-part confession. I have sinned is absolutely true. What Judas did was wrong. And he confesses that Jesus is, in fact, innocent. As he confesses this to, to the clergy of the day, the response should be, Before God, who hears your confession, you are forgiven because he will make the sacrifice for you. But instead, the chief priests and the elders say to him, What is that to us? See to it yourself. We have no desire to speak to you of absolution for your sin, Judas, because you were our pawn, you were our tool to get Jesus betrayed and sent on to his death. Whether or not he has innocent blood, we don't care. We just want him dead. So when it comes to your contrition, when it comes to your regret, see to it yourself. Well, Judas has tried to find some sort of of absolution or comfort after this betrayal. And, And when they tell him, you take care of yourself on this, since he's found no help so far, he goes out and he hangs himself instead. But before he hangs himself, he takes the 30 pieces of silver that they paid him to betray Jesus, and he throws down the silver in the temple. Now, there's a lot going on right there. In part, it's because since they're the ones who paid him, he doesn't want their money because they've used him as their tool to betray Jesus, so he throws it back at them. He doesn't want to be paid for his sin. But more than that, we learn from Deuteronomy 23, verse 18, that um, it's forbidden to bring ill-gotten money into the temple. Deuteronomy 23, 18 specifically speaks of of money that is earned by prostitution, but any ill-gotten money is, is unclean money, filthy lucre, if you were, and if you bring that into the temple, you make the temple unclean, and the temple is unclean, then it has to be cleansed before sacrifices can be made again. So, as Judas throws the money into the temple... This unclean money also defiles the temple. And in doing so, it fulfills a prophecy that Jesus has recently spoken just four chapters before in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we have Jesus' famous lament over Jerusalem where he says, 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and, and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And then he ends that by saying, See, your house is left to you desolate. And here the temple on the, on the uh, night where Jesus is betrayed, on the beginning of the day where, where God is put to death, the temple is left desolate, unclean, because Judas throws this, this, this silver un, into it and makes it unclean. At the same time, though, and, and there's, there's irony in this, as, as Judas defiles the temple and makes it unclean, the temple is, all, is also now unnecessary. Why? Because on this day, Jesus' innocent blood is about to be shed on the cross for the redemption of the world. And with Jesus' death, the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for sin is made, and the temple is no longer necessary. The temple is no longer relevant because Jesus is the temple who replaces the temple in Jerusalem, and his sacrifice ends all sacrifices of animals for the forgiveness of sins. So, although Judas has no idea this is happening, he sort of decommissions the, the temple by throwing the money in because the temple is no longer necessary and it is Christ who by his sacrifice makes his people clean. And once Judas throws the money in, then he goes off and he hangs himself and, and, and there is no sign that he trusts in Jesus or forgiveness, but having been left to trying to forgive his own sins, he can find no grace, and all that's left for him to do is, is get rid of the life that God has given him. Now then we have this kind of interesting little note by, by Matthew um, about the fate of the silver and what it means. So verses 6 through 10, but the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. <laughs> okay, so first, what happens to the money? The chief priests say, we can't have this unclean money here because this is the temple. We've got to use it on something outside the temple. And so they use it to buy the potter's field, it's called, and it is to be a cemetery for strangers. And a, a burial ground, a cemetery, is by definition an unclean place because it's full of dead bodies, and dead bodies are unclean. And so the, the priest uses unclean money to buy an unclean place to bury unclean bodies. But what hypocrisy on their part Judas throws this money at the temple, you know, in, in, in essence, at their feet, and they say, 
We can't have this blood money for betraying the Son of God in God's temple. We've got to keep the place clean. And compared to that dirty money, if you will, that that money is clean compared to their souls and their intentions as they seek to have God put to death. And in all that, we still marvel in this. That while Judas is this, this tool who falls prey to sin and then kills himself, and while the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, the chief priests, are working with hostility and malice and evil intent, God is still using all of that to accomplish ultimately his will of redeeming you and me through his son's death on the cross. But back to our text here with verses 9 and 10, which are the the. Uh, most puzzling verses of this chapter, where Matthew, again, I'll read it, says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Bunch of kind of tough stuff to, to, to explain here is, is happening all at once. First off, the prophecy here is not from Jeremiah, it's from Zechariah. But it's not that Matthew is confused. We've seen this before in the Bible when Matthew or another um, evangelist refers to more than one prophet. He cites one prophet but includes references to more than one prophet. So it's interesting, he, he mentions Jeremiah, but then quotes Zechariah. So we think of both prophets, Zechariah and Jeremiah. So first off in Zechariah, um, because that's the, that's the more evident prophecy here, in Zechariah 11, verses 4 through 14, there's kind of a, a strange, puzzling story there. Zechariah, as a prophet, is commanded by God to be a shepherd. He's commanded to be a faithful shepherd in charge of a rebellious flock of sheep. And the sheep hate him as a shepherd, and his fellow shepherds hate him as a shepherd. And so the sheep keep rebelling against him. And, and he says that in a short amount of time, he, he destroys three of his fellow shepherds because they oppose him. And, and, and finally, um, he, he turns in his resignation. He breaks his staffs in half and, and asks for his pay. And for being this faithful shepherd, they, they determine that he's been worth 30 pieces of silver. And he's instructed to take those 30 pieces of silver and throw it to the potter. So now we have 30 pieces of silver, and we have mention of a potter in Zechariah 11, verses 4 through 14. It's kind of a mess, but here's what we get out of this. For one thing, uh, throw it to the potter in Zechariah appears to be an expression of disgust, like, like throwing money away. Why don't you just throw it to the potter? It'd be the same as, as someone saying, I'm just flushing money down the toilet. All right, that appears to be the, the essence of the meaning here, but it takes on new meaning, of course, when this is fulfilled in Matthew 27. As for the rest of this strange story in Zechariah, we, we see Christ as the faithful shepherd who is rejected by, by the crowds, by the, the faithless flock, um, the crowds in Jerusalem. He's re rejected by his people. We see he's rejected by other shepherds, the chief priests and, and the Pharisees. 
and, and Jesus is priced at 30 pieces of silver. He's not paid that. Judas is, but still the price set on Jesus is the same as what Zechariah gets paid for being the faithful shepherd. It's a strange story, but Matthew says in, 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 in our passage here that this strange story in Zechariah points to um, the betrayal of Jesus and, and his rejection by his people. Now, finding a passage in Jeremiah about this is a little bit more obscure, uh, but we find something in Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. And there, God tells the prophet to buy an earthenware flask or a piece of pottery. And then he's to meet the elders of the priests of the city at the potsherd gate. Now, potsherd is, is a, is a, are shards from pottery. And there, Jeremiah breaks the flask. And he tells the elders that the city will be broken because they have shed the, the blood of innocent people. And so here in Jeremiah, we have, um, we have pottery broken because, the, because innocent blood is shed. And, and, and here in Jerusalem, because innocent blood is shed, namely Jesus' innocent blood, this city too will fall. And in fact, Jerusalem suffers a, a bloody conquest and is directly related to the rejection of Jesus. It happens about 40 years after the crucifixion, but here's a sequence of events. The chief priests and the Pharisees get rid of Jesus. They reject Jesus, and in doing so, they reject the gospel that people are saved by, by grace and by faith in Jesus. And they continue to operate on their religion that people are saved by keeping the law. In fact, they double down on that and, and become even stricter rulers on keeping the law. And part of their law is that they must get rid of the Gentile, the infidel, those who are, are, are governing over them. And so uh, within Jerusalem, zealots arise who rebel against Rome. What does Rome do? They surround the city. They lay siege to it. And the suffering inside of Jerusalem in 70 AD is just horrific. If any man escapes, um, escapes Jerusalem and tries to get past the Roman lines, he's crucified in the sight of the city so that others know that, that only death awaits if they escape. If, if women escape Jerusalem, the Romans cut off their hands and send them back into the city so that they, they can eat, they can consume resources, but they can't help anybody. And, and after that, it only gets worse. And so the city of Jerusalem will eventually fall. And again, it's because they are practicing the religion that they are saved by their works and by getting rid of the infidel. And they're practicing that religion because they have rejected Jesus and his teaching that they're saved by grace and faith in him. With, with this mention of prophecy, then our interlude about Judas 
comes to an end. And and again, a, a few uh, a few points to reinforce here. One is that um, despite all the sin and the despair and the depravity of, of of Judas and the chief priests and the Pharisees, God is still at work through even their evil. He uses their evil for good to accomplish salvation for you and for me. And we want to reinforce that Judas and the chief priests and the Pharisees are not two-dimensional figures. They're not just automatic hostile villains from day one who say, when we grew up, we want to kill God. Rather, through different events in their lives, their sinful nature gets fed enough error and, and information that eventually they decide the best thing they can do is sin against God by having his son crucified. We should take note, too, that we have the same sinful flesh, and over time, evil grows, and we can find ourselves committing terrible sins, too, if we're not careful. And the final lesson from Judas is this. He desires absolution, but he doesn't go to Jesus. He goes to Jesus' enemies, and forgiveness is found only in Jesus Christ. That's why we run to our Savior and hear his word and rejoice to receive his supper. With that, the interlude about Judas ends, and we're back to the trial of Jesus, who stands before the governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate is... um. Pilate is an interesting guy. He, uh, he's, he's certainly not considered a hero of the Bible. Um, in fact, he's kind of considered by many to be a, uh, an awful ruler, um, kind of incompetent, and yet somehow he manages to be governor of Judea for at least 10 years, if not closer to 15 or 20. We know for sure that he's the prefect of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. Um, it, he might have started as early as 19 AD, and so his, his rule spans quite a bit of time. So whatever blunders he makes, he still manages to retain power for quite a while. Um, now, Pilate has kind of a, 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 a high-friction relationship with the Jews every now and then. Um, among the stories you know of Pilate is, uh, is that when he arrives in Jerusalem as, as the new governor, he has received instructions um, that, that there are kind of two rules for, for governing the Jews. The first is um, collect the taxes and leave them be with their religion. Collect the taxes, because that's a requirement throughout Rome, and as long as you don't mess with their religion, you're probably not going to have trouble, but if you try to mess with their religion, you're going to have big trouble fast. So Pilate shows up, and he does want to promote the glory of the Roman Empire. He doesn't necessarily want to be hostile to the Jews, but he does want to show that it's it's good to be part of the Roman Empire. And, and so one of the things history tells us that Pilate does is when he shows up, he sets up standards that have Caesar's face on them, a kind of kind of shields um, or, or banners to, to show that, 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 uh, that, that Caesar is Caesar. And he also has, has money printed that, that, uh, that may in fact have Caesar's face on it. Um, and, and 
And uh, this causes consternation among the Jews because they follow Exodus 20, where it says, you shall have no graven images. And since Caesar claims to be both human and divine, um, Pilate, by putting up these, these standards with Caesar's image on it, has an image of a false god on display. And, and so the, the, the Jews take exception to that. And apparently they, they write to Caesar and say, um, you know, this is what Pilate's doing. And Caesar writes to Pilate and says... Be careful, strike one. Well, as, as history tells us, um, Pilate decides that he wants to do something in the way of, of, of civic improvement for Jerusalem. And so he decides to improve the aqueduct system, the irrigation, the canals into the city. And that's, that's a, a, a marvelous thing to do, except it costs money. And so he confiscates money from the temple treasury to, to get this done. And, and the, uh, the Jews do not take kindly to having the temple treasury um, pilfered for this, for this project, even if it benefits them. So they complain, and Caesar writes to Pilate and says, strike two. Um, and, and apparently, um, as, as, as it's recorded, Pilate decides that maybe it's time to try a different tact, and so he arranges to give a, a speech in Jerusalem, and, and so people are gathered in this crowded square, and when he gives a signal, some of the people take off the robes, and the Roman soldiers, who uh, apparently apparently start to stab some people standing around them. So Pilate can say, if you don't like me being nice, maybe you'll respect me being mean. Um, anyways, no surprise, Caesar hears a complaint, writes back to, to Pilate and says, um, says, strike three, buddy, uh, be, you're on thin ice. But, but even so, even though we have the, these black marks against Pilate in history, uh, he still manages to be, to be uh, the the ruler of Judea for 10 to 15 years. Um, so Pilate appears to have some, some bad moments. Um, the Jews have leverage to use against him from his kind of bad track record, but it doesn't ever appear that he's being hostile to those who live in Judea. He just maybe, maybe blunders as he tries to promote the Roman empire. At any rate, this is the guy who's going to hear um, the trial of Jesus on behalf of the Romans, and he is the Roman ruler, so he's in charge of justice there. And Jesus, as far as we know, is not a Roman citizen, which means Pilate doesn't have to operate by full Roman law, and he can serve as judge and jury and executioner for a non-Roman citizen. So here we go. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So, so Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, may be for one of two reasons at least. The first off might be the judge saying, all right, the accusation against you is you claim to be um, the king of the Jews. How do you plead? Or it might be Pilate looking at this, this, this Jesus who has been bound for several hours, has been beaten up terribly by, by the guards of the chief priest. He might be looking at him saying, 
Really? You're the king of the Jews, are you? At any rate, Jesus doesn't answer him. In fact, as he's accused of many things, he gives no answer whatsoever. And the Bible doesn't say why. I, I, I do think there's merit in, in the observation of a, of a man named Johann Gerhardt who said, when Jesus is accused, he doesn't defend himself. He accepts the accusations because even if they're not true of him, they're true of us. And because he's come to take our place, he accepts the accusations because he's bearing those sins and he bears those sins to the cross to redeem us. At any rate, Jesus does not defend himself and the governor is greatly amazed. On to verse 15, we have a little bit of a, a, little bit of, of a gambit by Pilate. We read, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted... And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So, so this gambit shows, it, it shows some chops and some, some brains on, on, on Pilate's part. Um, so he has a tradition of releasing one, one Jewish prisoner, a pardon at the time of the Passover feast. And he has a man in, in the cells whose name is Barabbas. Now, Bar means son, Abbas or Abba means father, and so the criminal's name is, is, is son of the father, even as Jesus is the son of, of our father who art in heaven. Barabbas is called here a notorious prisoner. In John, he's called an insurrectionist. So Barabbas is, from what we can gather, a violent man who has sought to overthrow the Romans and is willing to do all sorts of horrible things to get the job done. Jesus, on the other hand, has this track record of what? Of feeding the hungry, of helping the poor, of healing the blind. So Pilate offers to, to release one or the other, who do you want living in, in your neighborhood? The violent insurrectionist will no doubt bring trouble and, and more violence and bloodshed on your neighborhood? Or Jesus, who helps and heals and feeds and performs miracles? The decision should be a no-brainer. And by making this, this, uh, this offer to, to the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the crowd... Well, for one thing, Pilate can probably get Jesus released because he knows that he's innocent. 
And Pilate can also gauge how seriously the chief priests and the Pharisees considered Jesus to be a threat. As far as we know, nobody wants Barabbas walking the streets again. It's not like he's a hero. He's a troublemaker. So if they want Barabbas released, that tells Pilate how much they hate Jesus. So there's the task, but for Pilate, nothing is easy. So we, we have a few notes about, about this gambit as it goes on. For one thing, even if Pilate wants a reasonable decision, he knows that the chief priests and Pharisees are not acting reasonably. We read that he knows they, that they are acting out of envy. So even though Pilate wants them to make a, a rational decision, he knows they might make a decision based upon their envy, not upon what is right and good for the people. So, so the bad motives kind of make this, this gambit a, a, a risky one. And the second complication is, is that he gets this, this, this strange letter from, from his wife, his wife sends word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And boy, we'd like to know more about that dream. Has, has God uh, given this dream to, to Pilate's wife to testify of Jesus' innocence? I mean, it, it could be God works through dreams in the Gospel of Matthew to speak to people. Uh, the, the, the wise men are warned to avoid Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh, but Herod. Uh, they're warned in a dream. Uh, Joseph is, is told in a dream to take the child to, to Egypt, etc. And, and so it may well be that, that it is God who gives Pilate's wife this dream here. Or, or perhaps not. We don't know. But at any rate, um, as, as Pilate is running this, 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 this test to see how much the chief priests and Pharisees want Jesus dead, his, his wife interrupts his, his thoughts with, have nothing to do with this man because I'm suffered much and he is, he is righteous. And if that, uh, if that isn't enough, rather than a, a reasonable decision... Pilate instead is faced with an angry mob because rather than, than talk things through, the chief priests and the elders persuade the crowds. Uh, they persuade the crowds to, to call for the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. So um, my, my guess is that Pilate is working hard to get Jesus released. I mean, throughout the Gospels, Pilate proclaims Jesus innocent. He, he seems to be fighting very hard to get Jesus released. But the, at the end of the day, Pilate says, one of us has to, has to suffer uh, today. It's either Jesus or me. And so, says Pilate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick Jesus. And again, there's, there's irony there um, because Jesus willingly suffers for our sin so that we need not suffer God's wrath for our sin. Again, God is at work through Pilate's weakness and failures to get salvation done for you and me. At any rate, um, the people call for Jesus' crucifixion, and so our, our, our text ends with this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. 
And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So, so Pilate wants nothing to do with his decision. And so before the crowd, he washes his hands with water and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. In other words, this is all your doing and your responsibility, not mine. Well, nice try, Pilate, but you have an office given to you by God. According to Romans 13, you hold that authority because God has given it to you and you've just sentenced a man to death and now say, I couldn't help myself when you had the authority to set him free. So no matter how much Pilate wants to consider himself innocent, he's not. He too is guilty of the death of Jesus. The crowd, however, is willing to let him off the hook. They cry out, In one voice, his blood be on us and on our children. Which is kind of a chilling thing in a way because uh, they're saying we are willing to be responsible for, for the death of this innocent man, for the death of God in the flesh. Now, they don't know what they're saying yet but, but uh, because they, they don't really know who Jesus is. But remember what I said before, because they reject Jesus, those who live in Jerusalem grow only more zealous about the law and against the Romans. And so finally in, in 70 AD, the Romans come and just destroy the city and, and just annihilate the people. So as the people call for Jesus' death here and say, his blood be on us and on our children, that is most bloodily proven to be true in 70 AD. Now, it's not that the the crowd, the people here, curse themselves to this fate um, by saying these words. Rather, it's just that by rejecting Jesus, if you reject the Lord of life, all that is left for you eventually is, in fact, death. And it comes violently at the hands of the Romans um, some 40 years later. There is still, however, irony here, because why are you and I saved? Why do we have the hope of eternal life? Because Christ shed his blood for us, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all our sins. He washes our robes in his blood and makes them white, says Revelations. In other words, because Christ's blood is on us to cleanse us, we have the hope of eternal life. So even as this crowd kind of gruesomely predicts their own death decades later, They ironically and unintentionally declare this truth that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. With that then, our our text ends with, uh, with Pilate delivering Jesus to be crucified. And so Jesus is led off to be put on the cross on Calvary. And that concludes our lesson on, on this Sunday of the Passion. God grant you every blessing as you meditate upon this text or as you teach it to others. God grant you always the comfort that even in, in all these horrible actions of, of sinners, he is still using that for your salvation. And rejoice always that Christ's suffering and death are for you. Till next time, the peace of the Lord be with you. 
Amen.